Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. An alien race begins its attack on the Earth. The aliens will stop at nothing to take over the world, and their relentless pursuit brings them in waves. But the people of Earth are not just going to give in to this attack from above. A gigantic laser cannon is created, and the heroes fire back at the aliens in an attempt to save the world. The cannon is working, but as the aliens begin to get picked off, it only increases the speed and ferocity of their attack. Will the Earth be doomed by this alien invasion? This may sound like I'm describing War of the Worlds or a sprawling space opera, but it's not. It's the premise of a simple kilobyte video game that you may know better as space invaders for the Atari 2600. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dressed, consumed, and connected. On today's journey, we travel back to witness the origins of the company that forever changed home video games. This is The History of Atari. the first video game you ever played? Was it handheld, a console, or an arcade game? If you grew up in the 80s and got the chance to play home video games, there's a good chance it was on an Atari. Even though Nintendo would dominate the second part of this decade, the first half belonged to Atari. In fact, the late 70s to the early part of the 1980s is still considered the golden age of video games, and Atari was king. So how did we get to this point where the name Atari became synonymous with video games? Noah Bushnell was a university student who, in 1962, was blown away by what is considered one of the world's first video games, Space War. Bushnell wondered if this could work in coin-operated form. In 1971, along with partner Ted Dabney, Bushnell created a game called Computer Space, the game could actually be displayed on a standard TV and was demonstrated to Nutting Associates, an arcade game manufacturer. They were impressed and hired the duo. A thousand games of computer space were sold, but it wasn't exactly a hit. The pair ended up leaving and starting their own company. The duo brought in designer Al Alcorn, who was immediately put to work to create a new coin-op game. But what was that golden idea that would give them a hit? If you're old enough, you may remember the Magnavox Odyssey, which was the very first commercial home video game console. It was released in 1972, before the word video game even existed. Included with the console was a simple tennis game where two players could hit a dot back and forth with longer lines that represented rackets. The system and game were very popular, and the idea was to create a coin-operated version of it. The team was busy at work, but they also realized they needed to be a legitimate business if they were going to launch their game and be taken seriously. They went to register a name only to find out it was already taken. 
Frustrated with everything that went into creating and establishing a business, they took a break by playing a Japanese game called Go. Go is a simple strategy board game that uses black and white dots with the goal of surrounding more territory than your opponent. The game goes back 2,500 years and contains many interesting words to describe the gameplay. Bushnell began to write down some of those game related names with the hopes one of them may make a good new company name. There was one word from the game that was used to describe a moment in the game when there was a threat of capture, almost a checkmate. That word was Atari. This was the perfect name, and Atari was incorporated on July 26, 1972. The next month, their table tennis arcade game was complete. But instead of calling it tennis or table tennis, they would look to the brand name version of table tennis, ping pong. In the US, Parker Brothers had owned the trademark name ping pong since the 1920s. Atari would simply drop the first word and call their game pong. November 29, 1972 is a red letter day in the history of pop culture. This is the birthday of Kevin Baumgartner, aka Kevin Malone from The Office. The number one song in the US was Papa Was a Rolling Stone by The Temptations, and the top song in the UK was My Ding a Ling by Chuck Berry. But what makes this such a significant day is it was when Pong was unveiled for the very first time. And if you happen to be listening to this episode the day it's released, it's exactly 50 years to the day of the release of Pong and when the world first met Atari. Pong was released in a single location in California, and within a few days, the machine was already experiencing technical difficulties. When Alcorn went to service it, he found that it was so jam full of quarters, it was causing malfunctions. Maybe they were onto something. Spurred on by the success of Pong, Atari continued to put out more arcade games, which were also successful. Since they had looked to the Magnavox Odyssey as an original inspiration, they wondered if they could have their own home version of Atari. But while this was going on, changes were happening within the company. They were sold to Warner Communications, and Nolan Bushnell was now going solo as the head of the company. Atari was a young and rebellious company filled with young, enthusiastic employees. Most were in their early 20s, including a young guy with a beard and shaggy hair that had no problems telling people what they were doing wrong. That employee's name was Steve Jobs, and the hiring of him would change the world forever. While with Atari, Jobs was put on the night shift, and one day, Bushnell came to him with a plan for a new game called Breakout. During this time, microchips were extremely expensive, and Bushnell presented Jobs with a challenge. For every microchip he could take out of the design, Bushnell would give him $100. This is when Jobs brought in a friend who was an incredible engineer. Steve Wozniak was a quiet but brilliant designer and technician, and Wozniak, or Woz as he was known, got the job done in just four days. Woz used so few chips that it reportedly made Jobs around $5,000, and a light bulb went off in Steve Jobs' head. He saw what was possible from working with Wozniak, and his encounter while at Atari laid the foundation for Apple computers. It wouldn't take long until the new computer company had a hit with their breakout computer, the Apple II, and even this had its roots in Atari, as a lot of the features from the Atari breakout game were incorporated into the Apple II. Back at Atari, 
the company was about to release one of its most iconic video game systems ever. In 1977, Atari released the Atari Video Computer System, better known as the Atari 2600. The 2600 came with two joysticks, the game Combat, and sold for around $200, or nearly $900 when converted for today. The 2600 was amazing, as it used cartridge games that could be easily interchanged. It was simple, plug-and-play home entertainment. The Magnavox Odyssey was one thing, but with the Atari, we could now play real video games in our homes. It was like they had shrunk down the arcade games and put them into a compact little cartridge. Though the 2600 became a staple of home entertainment in the 80s, it took a few years to get there. Home computers were presenting some competition and the arcade industry was still going strong. But Atari knew they had a winner on their hands with the 2600 and went all in on the marketing campaigns. Attention shoppers, the new Atari cartridge game is in. Excuse me. Uh-oh, George again. Atari's air speed battle. It comes with 27 games, but that's just for starters. You can get nine cartridges, 187 games. Blackjack. I'd like an Atari. Sorry, only our demonstrators left. Mine! No, George. Mine. The new video computer system by Atari. More games, more fun. This caught on pretty quickly. By 1979, they had sold 1,2600 systems. Going into 1980, things seemed pretty great, but Atari was about to hit even loftier heights, all thanks to an alien invasion. It may seem easy to dismiss, but the game Space Invaders may be one of the most important video games ever created. It started out in 1978 as a shoot-em-up arcade game that took influences from War of the Worlds, a new movie that had just come out called Star Wars, and even the game Breakout created by Steve Jobs and Wozniak. Space Invaders was a massive arcade hit, and Atari wanted to create a home version. We're now into the 80s, and Atari does something that has never happened before. They've licensed the very first arcade game for a home console. Atari were innovators, and their pioneering approach worked as Space Invaders became a monster hit for the 2600. In its first year release, Atari sold 2 million copies of Space Invaders. And something else was happening. People wanted to play Space Invaders at home so badly that it was creating more sales for the 2600. A lot more sales. The release of Space Invaders quadrupled sales of the 2600. It's really hard to understate the importance of Space Invaders and how critical it was in the history of video games. This was the first game to sell a million copies. By the end of 1981, it had sold 4.2 million. By the end of 1982, it was 5.6 million copies. By 1983, it was 6.1 million. And the arcade version was still going strong. During those first few years in the 80s, the arcade game had made $2 billion, all in quarters. That is 50,000 tons in change. Not only was it the best-selling video game of the time, but Space Invaders was considered the highest-grossing entertainment product. Compare it to Star Wars. In the early 80s, Star Wars had grossed nearly $500 million, but that couldn't come close to touching the 
billion dollars Space Invaders had grossed by that point. Convert that $3.8 billion for today's money, and it's a mind-altering $12 billion. This was the power of Atari and Space Invaders. No one had seen anything like this, and it seemed unimaginable that home computer video games and what seemed like an extremely nerdy and niche market could be a billion-dollar industry. The golden age of video games was well underway. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The exact years may differ, but the golden age of video games is thought to have begun right in 1978 with the release of the arcade version of Space Invaders. Jason Whitaker, a technology journalist, wrote in the Cyberspace Handbook that it was this moment that ushered in the golden age of video games that propelled it right into the 1980s. Going into the 80s, what made a game like Space Invaders work for a home console was the technology had advanced enough that the gameplay really was improving. The technology is, of course, primitive by today's standards, but you have to put yourself in the shoes of a kid in the early 80s. Graphics, sound, and gameplay had now improved by leaps and bounds, and it was easier to lose yourself in a game than ever before. And you got to play in the comfort of your orange shag-carpeted living room with fake wood wall paneling. But as monumental as it was in the success of the console, Atari was more than just Space Invaders. Several other Atari games were creating a really big stir and big sales. Also released in 1980 was the game Adventure. In Adventure, you control a square avatar to find a magic chalice and return it to the Golden Castle. This took you through a full open-ended environment that is populated by creatures like dragons. Adventure was a groundbreaking game as it didn't take place on just one screen. You could move throughout multiple areas, and enemies were still moving about even though you couldn't see them. Adventure was designed by the great Warren Robinette, who included something interesting, something that had never been included in a video game before, an Easter egg. At the time, it wasn't common for designers to get credit for the games they created. Robinette worked around this by creating a secret room in the game. If you were able to navigate your way to the secret room, you would see a message saying this game was, quote, created by Warren Robinette, unquote. This whole video game Easter egg would be one of the driving influences behind the great book Ready Player One by Ernest Cline. Adventure is also groundbreaking as it's considered one of the real first action-adventure video games and the first fantasy game for a home console. 
And we can't talk about Warren Robinette without talking about another of his great creations for the 2600. With ion zones and evil drones, there's never been a video game like Yarn's Revenge, and it's only from Atari. In Yars' Revenge, you control an insect-like creature named Yars, who has to eat his way through a barrier to destroy an evil villain. There were still technological limitations, but Robinette managed to create a unique world and game. To draw players further into the game, a small comic book was created to illustrate the story and give some more backstory into why Yars wanted revenge so badly. And backstory is important because it helps create an emotional connection and helps us get more invested into the game. Yars' Revenge was released in 1982 and was another hit for Atari. It actually became their best-selling original game for the 2600. Also released in 1982 was one of the most challenging games ever, Pitfall. In Pitfall, you control Pitfall Harry throughout the jungle and you have 20 minutes to collect all the treasure. But during his pursuit, you have to avoid quicksand, rolling logs, crocodiles, snakes, and other hazards. Pitfall was yet another unique advancement in video games, as the game was made up of 255 screens that were horizontally connected to each other. They were connected in what was called a flip screen manner, which kept the game flowing over the screens. This was pretty groundbreaking technology, despite the technical limitations. Fitting all of this animation, including a character who could run, on a cartridge was very difficult, and the Pitfall game only had 4,096 bytes. The 255 screens were generated within just 50 bytes of code. It's really hard to explain how little computing power this is, but for a little bit of context, if you took the memory of every single game of Pitfall sold and combined it together, it would equal around 15 gigabytes. That's still 160 gigs smaller than what it takes to install an average game of Call of Duty. It was still a minuscule amount, but if you compare the original Mario Brothers game, Mario used around 32 kilobytes of storage, making the memory for the NES Classic eight times larger than that of Pitfall. Pitfall was another gigantic hit, and it showed people what video games could truly be. It sold 4 million copies, making it one of the best-selling games for Atari. The commercials for it even featured a young Jack Black. Pitfall is considered one of the greatest games of all time, and this may be a deep cut, but if you're old enough, you may remember Atari running a contest where if you scored 20,000 points or over, you could take a picture of your TV and send it in to receive a Pitfall Harry Explorers Club patch. Atari was on fire, and by 1982, they had sold 10 million units. But they were about to get even bigger, and that meant bringing home what may be the most popular video game in history. As great as all the Atari games had been, it was Pac-Man that continued to take the world by storm. If you didn't grow up in the 80s, it's hard to explain the phenomenon of Pac-Man fever. Pac-Man remains one of the highest grossing and best-selling games in history and has generated more than $14 billion. 
The arcade version came out in 1980, where you controlled Pac-Man, basically a yellow pizza with a slice missing, which is apparently where the inspiration came from. Using a joystick, you would guide Pac-Man around a maze eating dots, technically called video wafers. At the same time, you were trying to avoid four ghosts, which actually had names. They were called Blinky, Pinky, Inky, and for some reason, Clyde. The Pac-Man game wasn't beloved by critics, and some saw it as a step down from the arcade version, but that didn't matter. It didn't stop it from, at that point, becoming Atari's best-selling 2600 game of all time, with over 8 million units sold. But in the 1980s, Atari was more than just the iconic 2600. In the early part of the decade, Atari continued to innovate and developed a few systems that unfortunately were never released, including the Atari Game Brain, Atari Cosmos, and the Atari 2700. In 1982, they released the Atari 5200, which was the technical successor to the 2600. Graphically, the 5200 was a step up from the 2600, but for consumers, there was an issue it couldn't play 2600 games. An adapter was released that allowed this, but despite strong sales of the 5200, it just couldn't come close to the numbers of the legendary predecessor. It's also easy to forget that Atari entered the home computer market during the 80s by releasing the Atari 400 and 800, which were 8-bit home computers. In 1985, Atari took their home computer game to the next level with the Atari 65XE and the 130XE. These were more advanced versions of the 400 and 800 and were meant to compete with popular home computers such as the Commodore 64. Then there was the Atari ST, a full home PC with mouse, color monitor, a color graphical user interface, and one megabyte of RAM. The ST wasn't a huge seller, but found an audience with musicians, as it was a popular tool for music sequencing, which is the ability to record, edit, and play back music. This was a very groundbreaking innovation and may have changed the course of music history. Soon, Atari computers began appearing in studios everywhere. Bands like Fleetwood Mac would use an Atari 1040 ST as a sampler and sequencer in live settings. Atari was clearly dominating home video games in the early 1980s. The price of the consoles was dropping so more people could now own one, but there were so many new systems and there was an ever-increasing demand for new games. In 1983, this demand would cause the industry to falter. This was the year of the great video game crash. I've covered this topic further in my episode all about the Nintendo Entertainment System if you want to go back and check that out. But the quick story is the market was so oversaturated with video game consoles and a lot of third party and very inferior new video games. At this point in the 80s, everyone wanted a piece of the video game industry. There were 12 different systems available, including things like ColecoVision, Intellivision, and here's another deep cut, the Sears Telegames console. That's right, Sears actually made their own video games. Everyone was trying to steal business away from Atari, but it all came back to that issue of game quality, which was a major factor in the crash. Because any company could make a game for any system, a lot of inferior games flooded the market. Atari actually tried to stop this by attempting to regulate the third-party development that was producing games for their systems. 
They wanted to get some form of control over this quality, but were unsuccessful in their attempts. Nintendo would make this a priority a few years later, as any game made for the NES would have to come with the Nintendo official seal of quality to show it was an approved game. Nintendo even included a CIC, or Checking Integrated Circuit, in their games, which was basically a lockout chip to prevent third-party manufacturers from creating NES games. So anyone wanting a piece of the video game market could put out a game for Atari as it was the hot system. And needless to say, a lot of the companies doing this didn't have the technical expertise to pull it off. And when I say everyone wanted a piece, I really mean it. It may seem ridiculous, but Purina Dog Food and even Quaker Oats were actually making video games for the 2600. You may have heard of the infamous E.T. Atari video game, which has often been called one of the worst games of all time. It has been seen as one of the games that wasn't at the standard as other Atari classics and undeservedly takes a lot of the blame for the great video game crash. But you probably never played games like, and I'm not making this up, Chase the Chuck Wagon, an actual Atari 2600 game created by the Purina Dog Food Company. Chase the Chuck Wagon makes the E.T. Atari video game look like the Legend of Zelda by comparison. And that might be the nerdiest sentence I've ever spoken. With so much garbage flooding the market, consumers began to lose faith. So when you add all this together, too many consoles, inferior games, and the new competition from the home computer, it caused the video game market to crash. Because of what other manufacturers and companies were doing, Atari took a big hit and lost hundreds of millions. But despite this video game crash, it's not like all the Atari systems just disappeared from our houses. Even though the company suffered a big financial setback, we were still playing Atari at home. That wasn't going to change. And despite the setback, Atari continued to introduce new products to the market. In 1986, they released the Atari 7800. This was a very remarkable system as it only featured 57 high-quality games. The focus was on quality, not quantity, and in a move you rarely see in tech, it was backwards compatible, meaning it could play the old 2600 games without an adapter. In 1987, they released the XE game system, which worked as a home computer and video game console. And then there was the Atari Lynx, a handheld video game to compete with things like the Nintendo Game Boy. But, as usual, Atari continued to innovate as the Lynx was the first handheld electronic game with a color LCD screen. So, what is the state of Atari today, 50 years after it changed the video game world forever? Well, they're still here, and many of the classic games from the 80s are being brought to old and new audiences. Atari has released Atari 50, the anniversary celebration, giving players access to over a hundred classic games, including games from all seven Atari systems. The story of Atari is the origin story of video games. That's Chris Kohler, a video game historian, former games editor for Wired, and is now the editorial director for Digital Eclipse, a technology company and studio that pioneered video game re-releases. They've been around since 1994, and today they have dedicated themselves to restoring and preserving gaming heritage so that they may be discovered by future generations. And that includes classics from Atari and the golden age of video games. 
And it's interesting to see how the problems that affected Atari way back in the 80s are the same problems that face modern video game companies. And Atari encountered all the troubles that we still do today, you know, struggles between management and creative to the uncertainty of what happens when you need to transition from one console to the next or to big budget games that fail or unlikely games that become runaway hits and you, you're you desperately trying to keep up. It, it's all relevant. And you know, if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. Atari 50 is more than just a video game collection, but a journey back through the history of Atari. It's an interactive documentary style look at the history of Atari through playable games and digital artifacts and interviews and, and, and a lot more. And all of that is all together in one cohesive chronological narrative uh, through our interactive timeline presentation. We're used to classic movies being restored and remastered into 4K UHD, and Digital Eclipse takes the same approach with video games. These games need to be preserved and accessible, and it's why Atari approached them about keeping their games alive for future generations. Atari wanted to do something big celebrating its legacy for its 50th anniversary year, uh, which is 2022. Uh, it's the 50th anniversary of the release of Pong and the founding of Atari. And the, they they came to us at Digital Eclipse because, you know, we've established this reputation as the authoritative voice for classic games. And we pitched them on this idea that would be unlike a simple Atari game collection, something more of a historical celebration. But current generations are, of course, used to the astonishing technology in modern video games. How do you capture the interest of a new generation of gamers with these games from the past? While we, we definitely think that these the designs of classic games like Haunted House or Asteroids or Lunar Lander or Breakout, you know, they, these games have these, you know, fundamentally fun elements in them that would appeal to players of today. The, it, it, it's hard to escape the fact that, yes, these games are like decades old and, you know, what players expect from a modern video game has certainly changed. Um, in, the, in the case of classic games, we, we do try to enhance them with quality of life upgrades when it's appropriate. Um, uh, but in some cases, uh, you know, within Atari 50, we've got these all new games like Vector Sector and Neo Breakout and Haunted Houses. And these, the, the designers of these games have really tried to stick as closely as possible to the original, the, the design concepts to like the fundamental, you know, concepts of the original games um, while updating the look and the features and the the quality of life factor for, for modern, you know, gamers, but, but like without losing sight of what is it that made these games fun in the first place? As you can see over the course of this episode, the game library of Atari is so epic and vast. With such a wide range of incredible Atari games, how do you decide what makes the cut? You need the favorites, but what about games that are significant for other reasons? Many different factors went into the game selection for Atari 50. Uh, first and foremost was historical importance. Um, I really like to point out 3D tic-tac-toe. This is this is not like a, a, an extremely well-remembered Atari 2600 game, um, but it was the first game released by Carol Shaw, who was the first woman to have a full-time job as a game designer. It was certainly, it was the first Atari game that was, that was written by a woman. And, you know, we call that out specifically when you're in the timeline before you load up the game, you know why it's there and you know what it is and who made it and why that's historically important. So that when you play it, 
it's not just sort of floating out there in the ether. You know, you, you have that context. It's grounded in historical context when you play it. Um, another factor is really just sort of trying to round out the collection. It's, it is, I don't want to say nothing is easy, but it's easier to add in like, I don't know, more Atari 2600 games, but then it's easier to do that than to add in like a single Atari Jaguar game, right? But, you know, since the Atari Jaguar has never been available in emulated format, um, you know, prior to Atari 50, the anniversary celebration, we wanted to get as many Jaguar games as we could in there um, because we think that this is a really exciting moment that uh, people who, you know, don't own an Atari Jaguar are going to be actually able to play some of these games like the Jaguar has kind of become a meme um, whereas a lot of people know about it and joke about it but have never really sat down and really played it so you're finally going to get that chance with Atari 50 uh, the anniversary celebration think of Atari 50 like an interactive journey through the company's history almost like a digital museum exhibit but available for modern systems like PlayStation or Nintendo Switch what is it about these old Atari games that we continue to love to this day? I think we remember these games so fondly because the focus during the golden age of video games was on gameplay. And addicting gameplay always shines through despite limitations in graphics and sound. A modern game in all its sophisticated technical glory can fall by the wayside if the gameplay sucks. Games like Space Invaders, Asteroids, or Yars Revenge end up being vastly superior to some modern technical marvels because of the simple fact, you just want to keep playing them. When you have the gameplay in place, you honestly don't need much more to go with it. It's the desire to progress and improve in the game that continues to draw you back. It's the reason why a basic game like Tetris was one of the most successful and most addicting video games in history. The classic Atari games of the 1980s shared these traits. They were simple but effective. They were engaging because our desire to progress and improve will never go away. As humans, we just seem to be drawn to simple games, and maybe it's the reason we still play basic card and board games. It was that ancient Japanese game called Go that inspired the original Atari company and gave us the name. Even things like rock, paper, scissors, or tic-tac-toe are still fun to play as they present a reasonable challenge. There isn't even really a learning curve. You can quickly learn these games and get good at them, but never truly master them. It's the pursuit of that mastery that draws us back in, whether that be marbles or asteroids. There is hope that resides in playing these games. Maybe next time I'll get just a little bit further. Just give me one more shot. I am so close to beating this thing. I only need that one more turn. It's the reason we are drawn to gambling, as the games like Blackjack or Dice Games really are as simple as simple gets. Atari was like a digital version of the type of games that draw us in with their accessible gameplay, but keep us there as we progress and build our skills and abilities. Game designer Sid Meier once said that any game is simply a series of interesting choices and when we navigate these choices, it shapes the course of play. But it goes beyond that as ultimately even simple Atari games help to reveal who we are and how we think. And another big draw may have also been the bonding experience that happened with video game systems like Atari. You got to play them with family or friends and either interact together or cheer each other on. You could help coach and guide one another and their success was your success. Even if it was just one of you that conquered adventure on your turn, it felt like you won as a team. And even if you played them by yourself, that console was always sitting there waiting to take you into new worlds and adventures. <laughs> 
I think that's why we remember these consoles from our past so fondly. Atari changed video games forever. They showed us what home entertainment could really be, and they set the standard for the future of the entire video game industry. And that's why Atari is a definitive part of everything 80s. So thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, there's plenty more where that came from. So why not jump in the DeLorean and head back to my earlier episodes? There are a ton of great shows for you to sink your teeth into. And if you really like this show, do me a solid and leave a five-star rating and review. That helps more people find these amazing stories and makes my mom more proud of me. And if you're in a position to do so, you can consider joining Patreon.com. That's a platform where you get access to bonus audio content like the Everything 80s Movie Review Podcast. If you want to learn more, you can head to Patreon.com slash 80s. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash 80S. Or in the show notes, there should be a link to take you right there. So that's it for me. I'm Jamie. This has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.